Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Friends, welcome to the How to Live Beyond series of episodes of this podcast. To open 2023, each episode in this series has considered a set of tools or a way of thinking that's been useful, but that we're ready to go beyond in 2023. We've looked at abundance and manifestation, magic and entheogens, the wellness industry, and more with guests like Mitch Horowitz, Lisa Romero, Pilar Lesko, and Faria Roshin. These are techniques and traditions that we use to cope with and confront the challenges of our time, but risk if we can't consider them deeply, getting us stuck in those challenges, or worse, driving us even deeper into them. These episodes aren't a call to forget about these techniques and traditions, but instead a call to bring forward what they've offered without the barbs of the problems they're tangled up with. For quite some time now, we've had thoughts about nature and about the natural world just with us, almost like a stone in our shoe or a river running through our everyday thinking. It's often irritating. It often brings anxiety or nervousness. The sense that something must be done to help nature, to help ecology, to help the planet and the climate and the water and the trees is just always with us. But what? There's a deep relationship between our spiritual lives and nature, and I wanted to explore exactly what that was. There's a quote I love, little verse actually, from the 17th century German mystic poet Angelus Celestius, which is, Create a single worm, God may not without me. It dies if we prolong not its vitality. I love that line because it points to a deep connectivity in creation, not just that human beings are wandering around encountering the creations of God, um, but we are in a way completing them. We are prolonging their vitality. So it's not that we're just in nature or that we're meant to command it, just like we're not simply bodies with minds poured into them or uh, just a body with an illusory concept of mind clinking around in there. I want to talk about this because orienting ourselves in a spiritual way to nature is very tricky we end up falling into one trap or another. So I invited one of my favorite workers in this area on to the show, writer, teacher, and the person who coined the term New Age, David Spangler. Part of what rises to meet me, if I tune into it, is, is not an individuality within the stone per se, but it's a, it's a, a consciousness or a, a, a vast spirit of stoneness. <laughs> Mm-hmm. that uh, particulates itself to connect with me. So it takes on what I would perceive as a, a sense of individuality, a sense of this uniqueness of this stone, which is certainly shaped by and affected by the actual stone itself, what it's made of and its character and where it came from and so on. And it has this, its own particular vibe but it, in a way, it draws its particularization or its its, uh, um, its humanization <laughs> out of me. So I'm, in a way, I'm perceiving mm-hmm. uh, what's partly a projection and partly an emanation that has come together and jointly we're creating something that's communicating between us. 
as you can tell just from this clip, <laughs> David is offering us a very different conversation about nature and spirit and humanity. Everywhere we turn, these conversations are happening, these conversations of ecology, of ecology and disaster, of the environment and its needs, the planet's needs, and humanity's shared future with the planet. But mostly these conversations are purely materialistic conversations, and if they are instead spiritual, it's very often shallow in its spirituality. People talk about nature as having its spiritual value um, as something that's self-evident, when clearly it is not self-evident to so many people on Earth, or as nature as being removed from relationship with us. It has its own value in and of itself. Um, and usually I find that that stops us from having deep spiritual examinations of it. People talk about neo-pagan views that I think very often don't go much further than translocating the names of old gods or pagan deities onto the natural world. Where we have spiritual adjacent philosophy projects, neo-primitivism like destroying civilization or object-oriented ontology, both of those tell us that humans are supposed to somehow be decentered from the conversation about nature, even though those are concepts made by humans pretending to magically decenter themselves. On the other side, <laughs> we have people saying we should just transcend nature with AI and VR and more even though these are not even natural, they're merely subnatural. They all depend on our senses to give us what is simply another picture of the sense world without much engagement with our inner lives. So how can we approach nature from a spiritual perspective without merely engaging in nature worship? And how can we work with being and beingness in nature in a real way? For example, should we engage with the trees? Should we just go and talk to a tree? Should we look for the formative forces of the tree? Should we look for the postmodern assemblage of tree or becoming tree <laughs> or the dryads in the trees or the tree gods or the nature spirits? We don't have the taxonomy or the navigational aptitude to even know what we're encountering or how to approach. So how can we hope to know how to help? The answer is both simple and complicated because in some ways we must know we do have this relationship that's truly there and available to all of us, but we've created all these elaborate rituals. We've created elaborate rituals using magic, using entheogens, using all the spiritual and philosophical and technological perspectives that I mentioned before. Communication with the subtle worlds is, in one way, just very natural to us, but in other ways, it's challenging. And what part of what makes it challenging is we have all these habits and images and ideas that we have to work through. It's, it's, it's as if we lived in a very formal, ritualistic society, like, say, um, feudal Japan or uh, feudal Europe, for that matter, where uh, we each have our place and there are certain rituals of language and the way we greet each other and what we can say to each other, depending on what our class structure is and all of that. And that, that formality serves in one way to regularize human behavior, but on the other way, it gets in the way of authentic human connections because mm -hmm. we're, we're connecting through these rituals. And I think that happens in our relationship with the subtle worlds too. We create 
all these various rituals, which probably had some positive effect at some point. Otherwise, they wouldn't have created them and kept them going. But they, they, they create a structure that can get in the way. So all that can get in the way, but also <laughs> we can move away from truth when we resort to Jungian or like Joseph Campbell-esque ideas of normalizing spiritual presences through a sort of modernism where everything represents a collective spiritual well, um, and we aren't doing enough to notice distinctions. To take up an example from one of David's books— Think about the engagement with a chalice in our spiritual work and imagination, and think about how that may not be the same as putting a Star Wars figure on a constructed altar, which is something that a lot of people do, including David, by the way, but there's a difference, and pretending they're all the same doesn't serve us. It's the difference for me between like looking at a letter and then looking at a very complicated kind of newer word that the letter is embedded in or looking at the space between the letters or even a paragraph or, or uh, you know, major points on the body versus the smaller meridians that you would use for medicine versus constellations and stars. It's, there's obviously a difference even, but there is an echo and there is a, a relationship between them. And it doesn't mean to dismiss the, I hate this word, but lower relation or sort of the relation that's closer to us um in easy understanding you know as you can hear <laughs> this conversation goes in a lot of very specific directions that i think help form a general picture of how to approach nature and its spirits few people alive have done more identifying the distinctions of spiritual presences and being than david spangler i'm so excited to share this episode with you david's huge and generous body of work includes being the person who coined the term new age being a prime developer of the Fintorn community in scotland popularizing the concept of manifestation as long ago as the 1970s and might i add in a way that is so far advanced and beyond the popular conception of it even today, founding the Lorian Association, which helps people encounter the lessons developed by David and others on the path of what is called incarnational spirituality, authoring many books, including the one we touch on the most here, Techno Elementals, and more. This show is funded by Patreon. I believe that this show, and I think a lot of you do too, is contributing to a deeper thinking about spirituality, art, politics, philosophy, and economy. If you do agree, please do support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. It is the best way to support the show and to utilize a fair economic model that doesn't merely pay me for my labor, but supports the overall mission of what I put out there, what I do here, and the work I do with my guests and with you as the listener, as well as all the other projects I spend time on. Please take a minute now, pause the show, and go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib to contribute. And if you already do, thank you. Okay, now here's how to live beyond nature worship with my guest, David Spangler. Here we go. Hello, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, David Spangler. I'm so happy to be talking with you. 
Hello, Connor. It's a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> well, listen, um, I think I think I want to start right in the thick of things. Um, so I talk a lot on the show about elemental beings in one way or another. And I think it, it, they've come up in so many ways, but there are so many different ways of speaking about them. And I think what you write and what you work with has been so helpful to me as an articulation of why there's so many different ways to talk about them, because you've offered almost a real, like, I don't especially love this word, but a real taxonomy of beings where when you enter into um, the encounters you have, you're able to articulate the difference between them and the way there's so much layering between beings and sort of overlap of beings in what we perceive in our sort of everyday, you know, normal dimmed kind of consciousness. And so, you know, in, in some ways you're just a very powerful translator. I mean, um, you really are able to assist us in communication in that way. So I thought maybe we would start with that. There's a, one, say whatever you want in response to that. But two, I had in mind a, a description you give of a lake in your writing and how you go to the lake and you're seeing the water, the water beings, but also a being that's not the water elementals, that there's another being that kind of inheres in the lake and how that's all relating in your perception. And you break it down really clearly. So I thought maybe you could give either that example or sort of an example that is like that just to show the different layers that are not necessarily transparent to us, or even maybe transparent to all those beings that are there as well. Okay. Well, like you say, that's jumping into the, into the thick of it. <laughs> um, so I learned fairly early on that trying to map what I call the subtle world to the non-physical dimension was going to be a, a kind of hopeless task because of the of the very nature of those realms and the diversity that they contain um, but uh, but yes like you say it's, um, simple simple kind of taxonomies are possible i think what what we need to remember is that these uh, non-physical beings um I suppose the simplest way to put it is that they can be shapeshifters. They they don't necessarily occupy a specific form in the way that you and I do. But like us, and I think this is true for all organisms, they are uh, deeply embedded in a particular environment. And, and as such, when you're in touch with a subtle being, at least in, in my experience, I'm in touch with both the being and its connections to its environment. So in a sense that that plays into the into the mix. And that can be hard to visualize, it can be hard to uh, wrap your my head around at any rate. Mm -hmm. So I've discovered that many of these beings are, have the capacity to tap into our um, our treasure house of images, as, as Gareth Knight once put it, uh, into our imaginations and and draw out um, 
shapes and forms and images that they can assume as as really communication devices for enabling uh, communication with us. So for example, um, yes, I could use the lake as an example, but uh, there's another one that's maybe perhaps more, um, more to the point of what you're suggesting. Um, so here in my neighborhood, this is a highly wooded area. So it's a, otherwise it's a fairly typical American suburb, but it's um, got lots and lots of trees and lots of growth and we're, we're in a valley. So we're surrounded by foothills and we're uh, right up against the Cascade mountain range. And there is this lake in the valley. So there's a rich uh, environmental energy here. So there's lots of, of what I would call nature spirits that are in the area. And one of them, um, whom I have named Bob, uh, for no particular reason other than that my whimsy, um, he will appear from time to time here in the house to communicate with me. And when he does, he always appears as a, as a person, as a human being. But one day I was out on the porch looking out over the backyard and um, and I saw him but he definitely was not looking human and he was looked like a a, a figure made out of twigs uh, right. and he was in his tree attunement mode rather than his human attunement mode but I I knew it was the same person because or the same being because of the uh, the familiarity of the energy that he gave off, it would be like a kind of like a vibrational signature. So uh, neither of these forms, neither this twiggy form nor the human form, I think really constitute what he actually is. Um, William Irwin Thompson used to talk about these beings as being composed of music and mathematics. And I think that's actually a fairly lovely way of, of putting it because um, they they're as much um, sentient processes as they are um, solid forms, you know, in the sense that we would recognize here. So the same with down at the lake. Um, there's a being there that uh, I call the lady of the lake. She doesn't ever appear to me in a particularly feminine way. She doesn't look human in that sense um but but she conveys a strong feminine presence and if i were to if i were to try to render her imaginally i probably would picture something like a, a lady uh, emerging out of the lake a la arthurian uh, legend but um but she is a fairly vast presence uh and i feel her energy uh we're about five minute walk away from the lake and i can feel her energy here it's like it's like she has big skirts that you know spread out into the surrounding countryside um and then she in turn is nested within the energy field of the of the beings that um i guess you'd say inhabit the mountains the mountain davis the mountain spirits and so there's this, it's not exactly a hierarchy, it's more like a, a series of nested um, sentiencies and processes that 
are deeply interconnected and interwoven with each other, but they each create their own environment in a sense. And it's hard to, to say, unlike us, where you know, I can get up and I can move here through the house and mm-hmm. I can tell the difference between me and my living room. Um, that isn't always the case with these beings. They, em- they um, exude or emanate the energetic conditions that make up the environment. Okay. Well, <laughs> there's already so much there to ask you about. So um, I'm thinking about like, <clears throat> how do I, how do I say this? Okay. So yes, like there's the, the way in which these n- nestled <laughs> presences sort of hold and let go and contour themselves around each other um, so they can emerge into presence sometimes um, for us and for each other. And, but I, I guess I'm, I guess the thing that trips a lot of people up and it was something I spent a lot of time wrestling with before it started to become a little clearer to me, but it's still confusing is, you know, if you see a stone and people say, all right, well, so that's the mineral kingdom in a way. And then, you know, the, the beans we associate with the mineral kingdom are gnomes. And so you have different ways of approaching that. Like if you're sort of a, if you, if you have a neo-pagan way of approaching it, you would say, Oh, the stone has its own sacred, you know, life or whatever. And I, I always found that a little objectionable. I mean, not to slag on neo-pagans, but okay. People know I'd find that a little objectionable, but it, you can also say like, there's a gnome and I'm putting air quotes here for people who can't see, <laughs> which is everybody behind the stone, but it's not just behind the stone. It's an assemblage or a, or a congregation of the gnomes that are uh, creating a sort of aggregate of presence that make the stone cohere at the same time. And then there's individual gnomes. And then there's also our own perceptive, you know, interaction with them, which changes the way they look and the way they respond to us. So I think it's just all very confusing when we're talking about what we're seeing around us as, you know, um, the physical world, which is, a you know, a, an effect of the material or mineral presences of these beings. So can you <laughs> maybe pull that apart a little bit? Because I think it's just so hard to, I think it's hard to understand that kind of stuff. I mean, even, let me just go on for one more second. You know, even when I was like, um, studying with the, these students of Doskalosis. I mean, Doskalosis is very, uh, for people who don't know what that is, I'll put it in the show notes, but Doskalosis is very insistent. It's all elementals. It's just all beings everywhere. And that, that seems to be very true to me. But then when we start talking about what that means and what kinds of beings and how they relate to each other, it gets much more confusing. Um, and that you could approach a stone in that many different ways and we're all sort of looking for the correct way. And I know there's not necessarily a correct one. Maybe you can, maybe you can illuminate that for us. <laughs> e, Connor, thank you for your faith in me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, all I can share is my experience. And, and uh, I think that's, that's important. You know, I, I say they're my field notes. And they can be different from what other people experience. So 
So first, let me say that I have had communication with stones, but I've never encountered a gnome. Mm. Um, my experience with the subtle side of life began very early for me. In fact, in fact I don't really recall a time in my life when I wasn't aware of that other dimension. But I didn't have, uh, nobody around me talked about it, and I didn't have a, uh, a coherent you know, ideology around it. It wasn't like I was raised in, a, in an occult household or in the Celtic or what have you. So, so I learned to um, appreciate the life that I felt in things without ever giving it names. Uh, it was just, it was just the life, you know, it was just a presence. So, so there's a lot of folklore and a lot of experiences people have with various elemental beings, gnomes and sylphs and undines and so on, that I don't have. Um, that it's, I perceive it differently, I, I suppose. So. What I experience with uh, with that elemental life, the life that's within matter, whether let's just take the stone, is that um, part of what rises to meet me if I tune into it is is not an individuality within the stone per se, but it's a it's a, a consciousness or a, a, a vast spirit of stoneness <laughs> mm -hmm. that uh, particulates itself to connect with me. So it takes on what I would perceive as a, a sense of individuality, a sense of this uniqueness of this stone, which is certainly shaped by and affected by the actual stone itself, what it's made of and its character and where it came from and so on and it has this, its own particular vibe but it in a way it draws its particularization or its its, uh, um, its humanization <laughs> out of me so I'm in a way I'm perceiving mm -hmm. uh, what's partly a projection and partly an emanation that has come together and jointly we're creating something that's communicating between us, allows a communication between us. Mm -hmm. And in those instances, it's really the communication, it's the relationship that is most important for me. Uh, so here's an example. A number of years ago, I was going on a, a trip to Finhorn up in Scotland to revisit the community. And uh, I wanted to take something with me that would be a, a vibrational link here to my home. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll take a little pebble that I can just stick in my pocket and it'll be my, my link. So I went and I, I picked up a stone from uh, the front yard, a little stone, and I immediately got this strong vibe that said, no. Don't take me. And it wasn't like I was in, like I heard a voice. It wasn't like I was in touch with a gnome. 
but I was in touch with something mm -hmm. that said, uh, I'm part of this environment and I need to be part of this environment and don't take me out of it. So I, I said, okay. And so then I went around picking up different stones from around the house and they all said, no, we don't want to go with you. <laughs> um, of course, this did nothing for my self-esteem, you understand. But then I came upon this little stone that said, I would love to go, basically. And what I got from it was this excited uh, vibration, a sense of, uh, and if I put it in human terms, a sense of, of a, a, a youngster who was excited about going on a road trip mm -hmm. and excited about encountering energies and environments that it didn't have access to here. So that's the one that I took in my pocket. So was I in touch with a gnome? That's not how I would have phrased it myself. Somebody else for whom gnomes are uh, part of their um, vocabulary and their particular catalog of imagery uh, might say, yes, I was in touch with the the known, but I felt I was in touch with simply the spirit of, of the stone. Yeah. So I, I like that you're bringing this up because it, I mean, it, one of the ways I can understand that experience is with my experiences with the dead, who's, you know, I, it's so interesting because, you know, like Rudolf Steiner indicates this but you don't really exactly get it <laughs> till it happens where when you are communicating with the dead, what they say to you is actually you speaking. And what you say to them is them speaking. There's this weird sort of switcheroo aspect of completion that's happening in the communication. So I, I, I wanted to say that because I think when people hear that, or they hear what you say about the stone, like, oh, I'm bringing some of myself to it to allow the communication to happen. People will think, people might even be like disappointed to hear that. But when it happens, it's not a disappointing flat experience that's um, imaginative projection onto an object. It's actually something, it, it, it's experienced completely differently. I'm still at pains to describe what the experience is. It, when my mom died, just moments before she died, I mean, she she was in bedridden and had cancer and she weighed almost nothing, but she appeared to me fully composed. You know, I was lying in bed and she said something to me and I could describe, oh, I could describe to people very easily this apparition because people understand the sight apparition thing in some ways. But then when I say what she said to me was actually me speaking to her and saying goodbye to her that becomes a little more confusing. Um, but I wonder if you can articulate that completing almost lemniscate communication form that's not the same kinds of communication that we're used to. I mean, let me say one more thing and then I'll let you have at it. You know, when we speak, and I'm, I'm doing it even now, even though I'm, try I'm trying not to, but it's very difficult. When we speak, you know, you say something to me and then I have a thought and I respond to the thought, not actually what you've said <laughs> for the most part. So sure. Something rises up in my thinking and I engage with that and then give back to you the engagement with my own thinking. 
So in some ways, it's almost like that's happening with the stone, but you're not engaging with your own thinking. You're engaging on some sort of plane where you're responding to a different aspect than just a spoken word or language. Does that make sense? Is that a, well, a good articulation? You'll know that's, that's well said, Connor. Um, so when you and I are talking or when we encounter any other human person, we we're aware of each other as individualities and, and the communication, as you say, goes back and forth across space between us. And then, and it triggers this internal dialogue as well. But with subtle beings, it's the relationship that's important. It, you know, it's not the form. It's not what they look like. It's, it's mm-hmm. um, what they do can be important. Their function can be important because that's part of, the the vibe that they carry, but in in communication with them, it's it's the relationship that's important, and so um, there is the creation of what I call collaborative mind. It's like there's a blending of their field and my field, and now in an interesting way, we're thinking as if we were a single organism. Mm-hmm. Uh, even that concretizes it too much. As you say, it's hard to fully describe in words because it's it's not like what we usually experience in everyday life. Mm-hmm. But there is the shared uh, awareness, the shared sentiency, shared being, really, and and the communication is or can be um, very immediate. You know, it's like it, it arises from within in a way that's not exactly as if you're thinking it, but something's thinking it of which you are a part. <laughs> now, um, there's no one way that I've experienced that subtle beings communicate. That's for me, is the primary way, a kind of blending of our respective fields and being into a kind of collaborative state, collaborative mind or collaborative being, uh, a shared state. But I've also had experiences where they uh, stand separate and stand apart and and the transmission is more telepathic or it's more conventional. And sometimes that happens if they feel their energy is more than I can handle. If they feel that trying to blend their energy with mine, either because it's very, very different or because it's much more powerful, might be harmful to me in some way. But for the most part, there's this, you know, there is this blending very much like what you describe in it. In, you know, it's like, it's like we become, we have two mouths and they're both speaking. Ah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> That's great. I can see that in like a painting almost, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, well. <laughs> but it, yeah, isn't it? I mean, but is this also why like people will often say that, you know, when you encounter a fairy being or an other world kind of being, especially in, in Ireland, in Norway, and some other places where like they when they indicate something to you you're meant to do the opposite in a way because like <laughs> of the way that the communication is happening in a sense that's almost backwards 
I, I think that that probably is a, a function. This is anthroposophical, but like a function of accessing um, the communication through an astral like lens because there's a backwardness to that astral realm. And it seems like maybe because you're not saying that you're going through a different <laughs> realm somehow to talk with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. That what you've just described is, has, is not part of my experience. So mm-hmm. I can't really comment on it other than to say <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. I do tend to come at it from a, a different place in myself, uh, and it it creates this this kind of shared space. I think part of it is that I don't insist on on these beings becoming something for me. I don't insist on them having a particular shape or a particular form. Um, as much as possible, I just want them to represent themselves as as they are, and and then I'll I'll deal with that. Um, mm. So I'm I'm not somebody who's you know if you wanted to write stories about I'm of having experiences with fairies and gnomes and and so on. I do have experiences with a whole variety of beings, but they're not. Um, they're not particularly dramatic. <laughs> well, I mean, like on the one hand, like I, like obviously I, <laughs> like yes, but on the other hand, I mean, you did create the she deck with Jeremy Burke, where I mean, I think some of that it's is explained in there, where it's like, well, we don't want you to keep representing us in medieval forms. We don't want you yeah. to keep representing us in the forms that everybody has seen before, because that actually is stopping us in a way from meeting what's in front of us in, in the way that you're experiencing this timeline or this era. So we can't help as much if you keep showing us that way. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Actually, that was an interesting experience because when uh, Mario, the she contact behind the card deck first showed up, it, it came as a complete surprise to me. And and her energy was very different. Also, it was uh, this was a case where it was a, a formed being. I mean, there was a person in a in a way. I mean, there was there was something solid there that was interacting with me. Solid, and I should say, not in a physical way, but in a um, in presentation. It wasn't. There's was nothing amorphous about her. Um, and interestingly enough, <clears throat> over time, uh, I started recasting her in my mind into a much more human woman. Mm. Um, I think just because we became, she became very familiar to me. We had this, we have this nice relationship. And at one point, she said, uh, "David, stop making me." into a human woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's not that she, you know, look, uh, she she was beautiful in her way, but um, very sh- sharp um, features. Very, if I, if you saw her on the street, you probably would um, 
you wouldn't think that she was other than human. You wouldn't think, oh, here's an alien. But you would think that's a very unusual looking person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, yeah, she had, this was one of those instances where she came with a very specific project in mind and communicated that. And and then got in touch with Jeremy. Um, and when we had this wonderful experience where he and I would compare notes and discover that we were getting the same information, he was getting it through doing the artwork and I was doing it through the words. Yeah, I don't I don't think of the she as a, as a subtle being. They're not like my friend Bob or Twig or whatever I choose to call him. Um, they they have a much more defined Im sense of embodiedness. The, the not so subtle beings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> um one of the things that you've written which I found so so helpful um is in a it's a part of your book Techno Elementals. And you're describing a chalice that you have, which is made out of apple wood. Yes. And you're describing a plastic Yoda figurine. And you go to great length to describe <clears throat> why these two things actually, um, there's a different kind of beingness that inheres in each of them. Yeah. And I think this is so important because um, – Again, I think people are doing like altar making. They're they're using objects in their practices that I think because of certain understandings or the work of Jung, Joseph Campbell, that sort of thing, there's a sense that those forms are equalized, that they're the same thing, that the plastic Yoda and the chalice may as well be the same thing on the altar or have the same, you know, uh uh, potency or something like that, but sure. you express how they're different. And I think that that's really important because the, the distinction, it doesn't mean that you don't ever put a plastic Yoda on, you know, in a special place or something, but just the distinction really does matter when you're trying to uh, access and understand the spiritual world a bit more. And so I'd love for you to yeah talk about that. Sure, you bet. Um, there's two things that I find very important. One is to approach things with love, and the second is to approach them with respect and honor for what they are in, in themselves. Uh, and whatever, whatever, if I have an altar, whatever I put on it, chances are really good that I'm putting that thing on the altar because it has meaning to me. And so that's a whole other area of potency mm. that my Yoda has meaning to me and the chalice has meaning to me. And, and so they carry some of that energy of that meaning. And, and for most people, that probably is sufficient. That's what, that's what they're, that's the benefit they're getting from having those things on their altar. they become like talismans. But, if I approach those items directly with a sense of respect for what they are, and and they're not just items to be on my altar, they're not just talismans. They are um, 
concretizations of sacredness, you could say. They are their own uniqueness. And it doesn't matter that maybe, uh, you know, there were a million of these plastic yodas that were made in uh, some factory. Um, it's still uh, the material of which it's made, there's still sentiency there, there's still life there on the, in the subtle dimension. So I want to honor that. And, and, the, and the, the energy I feel with the plastic Yoda, uh, leaving aside Yoda, leaving aside, you know, all the imagery that's associated with that, but just as a, as a, as a thing, is different from the energy I feel in the in the applewood chalice, mm -hmm. and of course one of the differences is that they're made of two different substances, and that carries different elemental energy. Um, so, I want to have a relationship to the life, to that elemental life, as well as a relationship to its talismanic virtue on my altar, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel those two come together uh, because if I'm honoring the Yoda for what it is as this, uh, for the life within it, whether it was on my altar or not, and I, I've got two or three plastic Yodas around, rubber Yodas around the house. Um, if I honor it for what it is, whether it's on the altar or not, then if I put it on the altar, I'm I'm partnering with it. I'm asking it to partner with me as an ally in, in invoking whatever it is that I want the altar to invoke. So I'm not treating it as a thing. I'm treating it as an ally, as a, as a living presence. And the same with the applewood um, ch um, chalice. So for me, this, this treating of items with respect and love for their isness, <laughs> and to see them as allies or partners, that's a very important part of how I relate to the subtle dimensions. And, but, right, so like, I love that you bring that because I just know myself, I could very easily slip into, well, you know, the Yoda thing is not, as like, we don't need that compared to the chalice or what I know, I know I can do that to make a point, right? It's like a little like dagger that I'll use to sort of <laughs> poke at people who put the plastic objects, even though I have them myself all over my house, just sitting on shelves right. and so on and so forth. But I think it, rather than trying to make, you know, enemies instead of distinctions, if we look at the distinction, we can see, you know, the, the chalice, I think, as you point out, the chalice has a place in the evolution of humanity and human consciousness, whereas the Yoda figure has a a kind of a, almost a, a like a an imaginal idea kind of presence. You and I think, to... yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I just it's the difference for me between like looking at a letter and then looking at a very complicated kind of newer word that the letter is embedded in or looking at the space between the letters or even a paragraph or, or uh, you know, major points on the body versus the smaller meridians that you would use for medicine versus constellations and stars. It's, there's obviously 
a difference even but there is an echo and there is a a relationship between them and it doesn't mean to dismiss the i hate this word but lower relation or sort of the relation that's closer to us um in easy understanding you know so let's go back to the altar idea so if i have an altar actually i don't need anything on it I, I need to understand what the altar is uh-huh. as, a, as a thing in itself. Uh-huh. And and so what I'm really basically doing is saying, here's a space mm. that I'm setting aside that will be a point of invocation uh, of, of a higher energy. And that space also uh, contains my aspirations and my uh, reaching out to that higher energy. And so in a way, I've already established a kind of partnership. <laughs> don't actually need anything on the space in on the altar because it's, it's really a reflection of an internal state that I am now recreating out into my environment. But um, why not have things on the altar that have meaning to me mm-hmm. and that heighten that vibrational experience or the imaginal experience or my emotional mental experience or that represents something of reverence to me so if i were a devout christian uh, quite likely i would put a cross on my altar or or maybe a picture of of jesus or of mary or something representing the sacredness of my tradition mm-hmm. and and that doesn't necessarily make the altar more of an altar, but it it adds another frequency of of energy and relationship, because now I'm in relationship to those uh, iconographic elements, those iconic elements. And all of that helps to heighten the function of the altar as far as I'm concerned. And it really, and it does, um, these relationships do set up correspondences that invoke subtle energies. So um, I don't need to have anything on the altar to make it a a place of power. But I can also put things on the altar which um, help to trigger and enhance that invocation for me. Um, I've always had a thing for chalices and and grails. That's a significant image for me. But um, but I have a I have a really strong streak of whimsy, as I imagine, comes across in some of my writing, and 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 Yoda for me is fun. Uh, <laughs> I love I love what Yoda st- stands for uh, in the movies and just as this. In fact, I remember at one of the Lindisfarne gatherings, actually, um, Baker Roshi came out one morning to breakfast, and he was wearing a yellow t-shirt with a big red Yoda figure on it. And I said, oh, um, Richard, um, you're wearing Yoda. And he said, yes. He said, that's my lineage. <laughs> so, um, so Yoda, for me, does represent this kind of archetypal uh, wise old person who's in touch with uh, this, um, in touch with the force, in touch with this life that permeates all things. And 
And he's just a really fun figure for me. And I also have, uh, also I have a figure of Dr. Strange because when I first read Dr. Strange, actually Bill and I had this, and William Irwin Thompson and I had this in common. He was a big Dr. Strange fan. When I first read Dr. Strange back in the 60s, I thought, wow, here's, um, <laughs> here's something that sort of reflects my world a little bit. It was, I could really identify with Dr. Strange, and, <laughs> and I always thought, I, that's what I want to be. I want to be a wizard like that. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Strange also represents for me, I mean, it could be Gandalf, it could be Yoda, but it all represents for me that, that the, or Merlin, for that matter, it represents the role that that uh, archetypal figure plays in the development of human consciousness and acting as a bridge between this world and the subtle worlds. Mm. So if I put Yoda on my altar, <laughs> if I did put Yoda on my altar, it would be because that representation creates a triggering relationship that enhances the invocation and power of that altar for me. It, it's so okay. So so much. So the <laughs> first, the Doctor Strange thing is very funny. When I I used to say that, like a a few years ago, when I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, and people would ask me, I was like, I want to be Doctor Strange. Like that's what I want to do with my life. But yeah, now, right I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't want to use magic anymore, or anything like that. That's a bit of a misrepresentation. Right. But then I did find out that I think he was inspired by Rudolf Steiner. Like I think um, Stanley. Was it? I think Stanley created Doctor Strange. Was inspired by Rudolf Steiner, like when he <laughs> created Doctor Strange. Is well, the, that's interesting. I, I had not heard that. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um. But then I'm thinking. Okay. So there's. I was just in Drumbeg. Um. There, there's a stone circle in Drumbeg. Um. In Western in West Cork in Ireland, and it's very present in some of these stone circles. This is one of them where. It's, you know, the space between the stones that matters so much because of the kind of uh, <laughs> shaping of space and the character of that relationship between the stones and the emptiness between them that allows a certain kind of uh, response and relationship. And sure. so I'm thinking about the boundary stone in the she deck that you co-created Um this stone that's about what is possible by creating boundary, what is possible by sort of uh, creating a frame in a way. And when I, I have very limited use of the deck so far, I got it because I knew I was going to be speaking to you. So I was like, I better go get that she card deck too, as well as the other things I know about David, I should check that out. We're doing but, your homework. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but when I use it, you know, the feeling is, when you go through the center, you're sort of moving um, from one card to the next. And as you move from each card, the, the sort of stones around, you're bringing an aspect of each card as you move um, into the quadrants. And as you bring the aspect along, it transforms in accordance to the next aspect and the next and the next, and you go. And I see this when you're talking about having Yoda on the altar, the space between the things. It's like, if I can enter and move, I mean, you probably don't have to do this inwardly in such an 
strenuous way anymore. But if I can move and bring that Yoda aspect along with me, it means that there's an aspect of fun. Like I've encountered that fun portal that I can bring this kind of playfulness to the things I'm doing. It's a good spirit sense in me, even if it's uh, in my imagination as I move, you know, um, as, as I enter, that going through the space with that uh, transformative element is really important. Yeah, that's a very good description, Connor. I totally agree. <laughs> good. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can send me the check later. <laughs> um, that'll just be a blurb on everything I write from now. I totally yeah, agree, David Spangler. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, I wanted to talk then about, uh, I mean, okay, let me actually talk about the most important thing first, just to make sure we get it in, because I think all these, these beings and these layering of beings, you know, they're asking, asking, they'd like for us to work with them, obviously. Um, That's something you reiterate again and again in your work, but I think in the past and uh, and the present, there's this idea of how to access them and use them. And that happens through magic, through wellness practices, through new age practices, through psychedelics. But what's being asked now is not use us, but rather, um, I mean, my experience of it, I don't know if you would have the same experience, but it's not use us, not even use us to save the planet or, or that sort of thing. Um, but rather we were, something has changed in the world now and we're able to be shepherded into the realm of the heavenly realm. And that there's a time now where those beings have access to a kind of, uh, existence that they didn't have before and that's available through us and i i find this like in ireland it's quite potent and i uh, you know there's a story of um uh of a priest who went to save the fairies as well to sort of <laughs> redeem them and save them a long time ago but there's also like indications in a, a lot of ways that that work can actually be done now i think the bringing together of that what i yeah i'll say is the christ impulse and this other world impulse um and and presence and i think that that's quite different from the way that we've been for the past decades accessing using commanding as soon as we discover them that's absolutely right connor you've put your finger right on it um by the way, are there any stories of fairies saving priests? <laughs> oh, that's a really good, that's a really good <laughs> Actually, there's one that relates the two together, but it's only a fairy that didn't kill a priest. I'll just say that. <laughs> well, that's a start, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in my work, and in my relationship with the subtle worlds, so I have first I want to say talk about the subtle worlds, but we're talking about something really vast and diverse. Yeah, and I I could not sit here and say I'm a representative who can speak on behalf of all humanity. 
uh, and that anything I say is true for all human beings, because that would obviously be ludicrous. And it's the same with the subtle worlds. Um, there are subtle beings that I've encountered that have really have don't have much idea that humanity even exists, uh, and don't particularly <laughs> aren't particularly interested in us. And there are some that are um, don't like us very much and can be actively hostile. But the the, the ones that I work with, uh, and this seems to be, um, as you say, a a real shift, are saying we need to establish partnership. Um, and you're quite right. Um, at least since the 18th century, 19th century, there had been a movement in uh, magical circles towards controlling beings, the, the um, exerting of the magician's will. But but that's, that creates as many problems as it, as it may solve, and it certainly doesn't approach uh, many of these beings with the kind of respect and love that, that would engender trust and partnership. I feel that humanity, this is a really broad sweeping general statement, but we have, are coming to a point in our own spiritual growth where we can conceive of partnership rather than of control. And, and that's a shift for us. But that opens up a shift for them too, that the idea of partnership becomes more possible. I was, I was in a doctor's office uh, oh, a few years back, three or four years ago. And when I go to a doctor's office and I have to wait, there's a little process I go through of blessing the room and just trying to bring positive energy into the room. And if if there are, I may not be aware of any particular uh, subtle life there, but I always assume that, that there is a subtle life there and to bring um, positive appreciation and energies towards it. So I'm doing that. I'm sitting in this room and I'm sort of, putting out this good vibe and this little being shows up just appears in front of me about two and a half feet tall and i mean a kind of a traditional i think this would be a traditional fairy being or maybe a kobold or it was anyway it was uh, a being who uh, <laughs> looked after the subtle environment of that doctor's office and he said to me what are you doing and and I said, well, I'm 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 just going to bringing some blessing into this place, <laughs> and um, and to you folks. And he said, well, human beings don't do that. Um, this <laughs> isn't what human beings do. And I said, well, I'm doing it, and and human beings can do it. And then he became extremely excited and cooperative. So I think there's a I mean, I don't know how widespread this is, but I feel that there is a shift taking place in the elemental kingdoms, some of them at any rate, uh, that says possibilities are opening to enter into partnership with humanity. And it's a partnership that we really do need as we move forward into the future.
So yes, um, moving away from control, moving away from a sense of uh, we have to, we are the superior ones who have to manipulate these beings, or the other extreme, we are the victims, and they are uh, they are the superior ones, and we have to obey them. Um, it's the middle ground of partnership and fellowship and collaboration that we need to develop. And that certainly was what was behind Mario's work with me and with the SheDeck. And it's been behind um, all of my all of my contacts with the subtle worlds, and certainly 90% of them. And as soon as there's a recognition that I'm willing to be a partner and that's what I'm seeking, um, then that's met in a reciprocal way. Yeah, I, it's just occurring to me now what, <clears throat> that there's that that's part of the um, the difference between not not an, a disagreement or an argument, but the difference between s- the things that I might be experiencing and the things that you experience all the time. Which is that my my efforts, I mean, they've been almost silly. I'm I'm always trying, but it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere sometimes but it's all been to orient myself to christ in an esoteric christian sense and then to meet the elemental kingdom (laughs) which is a very different um i'm not saying that that hasn't happened in or with you in your life but it's a different way of saying it than the way that you express the meetings and the encounters and and the blessing because i think for me i've had to spend a lot of time reorienting to that position possibly because of karmic stuff um to then go and meet them um when i go to places in ireland that say they'll have a tree by a well and people have tied all these ribbons around the branches on the tree and all that in some ways it's beautiful but in some ways i think okay but not this anymore because this is um it's good that people are attentive to maybe the presence of nature spirits in these areas and they're tying the ribbons. But in some ways, the tying, which is a, even a binding act, is a way of <clears throat> showing a materialized uh, appreciation that drives the beings deeper into the, the, the earth, that drives them deeper into materiality. Whereas what I am trying to work on and through here is allowing them not escape from it, but a different experience of being that's not as bound to the physical effects of their material nature, if that makes sure, sense. Sure. Yeah. You want them to be themselves. Yes. Not to turn them into a, a human artifact. That's right. You know, I, what you're saying about the Christ is really important. And, and actually I do do that. I just, in, in my terminology it's what i call sovereignty mm-hmm. but that sovereignty is is an extension of manifestation of our innate sacredness so <clears throat> in a sense it's the same mm-hmm. it's the same thing uh, because christ in my mind is the great um spirit of incarnation of of individuality of the sake of the uniqueness of the sacred individual which not just a human individual but can be individuality however it's expressed 
within creation, that that is the a manifestation of what the Christ offers. Because of the lessons that are learned and the possibilities of, of creative and loving connection that are made possible when we can stand in that individuality in resonance with other individualities. So, so yeah, I, if I'm going to encounter a subtle being, the very first thing I do is, um, is to stand in my own sacred energy. I have to stand in that center place. Um, and that's really the, the, the lingua franca, the common language that I would have with an elemental being because their experience is so different from my own. And I don't really expect them to understand what a human being experiences and does. And I don't understand fully what they are and what they do, but we both share that sacredness. And, and the Christ can be a bridge. Um, part of the challenge is that, is that in Christianity, the Christ has been used as a kind of bludgeon where many of these beings have been have concerned. So, or rather Christianity has used it that way. So um, it, it really comes down to standing in a loving place in an honoring place for me and in, in, in reaching out to these beings. But um, they're, they're fellow organisms from my point of view. They're fellow living creatures and we can establish a relationship together, but it has to be one based on mutual trust and mutual respect. And I think that is so, it's so important to say that because again, with magic or the use of entheogens or whatever, there's an idea of <clears throat> what can I get from them as some of these or these beings that are gaining proximity to our existence that don't really deal well with us, that aren't really great at interacting with us, start showing up more and more. Though those beings actually the the elemental kingdom or the fairy kingdom or the you know the nature spirit kingdom, those need to be strengthened um, as this as these adversarial forces grow stronger and more present because they're our helpers you know, and meeting this, these, you know, beings, which are in, in some ways actually much younger in a weird way. I, I call the, you know, when people talk about Araman or they talk about these other beings, I call them the little brothers, you know, they're like the little brothers because they actually don't know how to behave yet. They don't know how to be loving or caring and all the elemental beings can assist us in that task, but they need to be strengthened. But weirdly, as the, those adversarial beings proliferate, more and more people are just using the elemental kingdom to get the shit that they want because times are getting rough because times are getting challenging. They're getting hard in a material sense. So one, I want to say it's great that you wrote a book on how to contend with <laughs> challenging times um, from a spiritual perspective, but I also think it's the opposite move is needed where we are actually offering and giving into and nourishing that, kingdom yeah i think anything we do that creates allies is important for them and for us 
you know, Connor, you're living in a in a magical place. I mean, you you're living in a place that has a long, long tradition of engagement with the subtle world, with the the fairy kingdoms, and so on, which is um, which is different from what where I live. So, in some ways, you're immersed in a surrounding that that vibrates to that um, to that past more than I have, more than I am here. So I, um, I really hear what you're saying. Like when you talk about going out and there's the tree by the well and people are tying things to the tree. I mean, nobody would do that around here. <laughs> mm. And I don't know why the, why are they tying, what, are, what is it they're seeking to do in tying these ribbons to the tree? Is it a means of trying to control the elementals of the tree? Are they are they like prayer tags and saying, "Here's what I would like for you to do for me"? And I'm sorry to people who do this because it's this obviously a sweeping statement, and it's actually a little bit of a condemnation, but. It's a kind of thoughtless honoring that actually makes things worse <laughs> in the same way that, <laughs> you know, or maybe it's a medicine that's not helping. It's sort of like taking, you know, too much Advil for your headache or something like that. Like, sure. yeah, that would be my interpretation of it. But that's not that's not universal, of course. But it, it I don't think any I think actually something good is meant. And so the intention that is actually enriching. But then the act and the 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 limit that the thinking and the intention hits is so solidified and concretized that it kind of blocks access to even the intention there i i understand yes thank you for sharing that i uh, it makes it clearer in my mind what okay. you're, what you're seeing and experiencing yeah i would i would agree um, communication with the subtle worlds is in one way, it's very natural to us, but in other ways, it's challenging. And what part of what makes it challenging is we have all these habits and images and ideas that we have to work through, because in some ways, we've lost the ordinariness of it. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's as if we lived in a very formal, ritualistic society, like, say, um, feudal Japan or uh, feudal Europe, for that matter where uh, we each have our place and there are certain rituals of language and the way we greet each other and what we can say to each other, depending on what our class structure is and all of that. Um, and that, that formality serves in one way to regularize human behavior, but on the other way, it gets in the way of authentic human connections because mm -hmm. we're, we're connecting through these rituals. And I think that happens in our relationship with the subtle worlds too. We create all these various rituals, which probably had some positive effect at some point. Otherwise, they wouldn't have created them and kept them going. But they 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 create a structure that can get in the way at times. And I, that's that's my sense of it as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the that's the problem. Uh, that's the big challenge right now is that so many things that we would want to do that are spiritual or that appear spiritual actually make it harder to get out of materialism. So it's actually, 
we we think we're doing spiritual things, but we're driving ourselves deeper in. And even, I mean, there there are material versions of that too, where we think that, you know, AI or, you know, uh, you know, uh, VR lenses and stuff like that, and so on and so forth, are getting us to a place that we're somehow transcending nature, but it's actually not even it's we have to use our senses to access that. So it's subnatural. It's not even natural. It's like beneath it's beneath the natural world in a way. And I think that that's always the great problem. And the many ways in which we exacerbate that um, in when we think that somehow we've escaped it, we've actually just created a more clever form of materialism. And that's the thing that I'm, you know, really concerned about right now and trying to help with, you know, as well. Yeah. Well, well done. Um, I, I agree with that. And some of that is a, is a heritage. It's a carryover from past behavior. And we're in a sense, we're in a, a time when we're having to learn new ways of doing things. and, and we're going to make mistakes and we're also going to make breakthroughs. One of the other things that you go to great length to express, which I think is so important is about these electricity elemental beings, these electro elemental, electro elementals. That's what you, that's what you call them. So I think it's really important to talk about these because for lots of reasons, but one, I was reminded I had this guy, Dennis Gaffin on, the show who did research in Ireland and in the Faroe Islands with about fairies and fairy beliefs. And in both places, everybody talked to you said, you know, as soon as electricity came in, the fairies went away. <laughs> That's what they said. And now obviously you're saying, okay, well, there are these electricity type beings. Um, and I definitely experienced that as true as well, but why is it that they can't, they, it's it makes it harder for them to exist in the same space for us harder I, it seems like a lot of people report that that there's less access to the other kinds of beings when the electricity and related technology beings start showing up i'm not sure if there is less access uh, in a um, in an absolute sense mm-hmm. um but it's more that the presence of all that electricity um, creates changes in our own consciousness. So to me, one of the effects of electroelementals is it tends to, um, act, it acts like a kind of speed. It speeds things up. Um, looking for a good metaphor for that. Anyway, it's like we lose our attention span. Um, everything starts happening more quickly for us. And, you know, it's, I have a, a friend who was, and, and I've experienced this you know, with my computer. If I, if I uh, log on to a website and it takes more than two or three nanoseconds to appear, I think my computer slowed down, you know, <laughs> I start feeling, why is it taking so long? But, um, you know, it, it 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 does pernicious things to our attention span mm. and to our ability to hold uh, a state of listening. But I think actually what it does is it 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 redirects our attunement in a way that makes it 
harder for us to to touch into the the longer waves, I guess I'd say, of the elemental kingdoms and the nature kingdoms than it was before. And and it's certainly possible. Um, I would not doubt that the presence of strong electromagnetic fields could be disruptive to certain um, etheric and subtle beings and moves them, causes them to move away. But my sense of the of the deeper problem is that it affects our inner attentiveness and redirects our energies in ways, well, just like you were saying earlier, it redirects us into a kind of sub-nature, moves us out of the world into something that's very um, closeted. You know, it's our own world. We surround ourselves with this electronic uh, environment that's very human in a way. We've humanized it, even though the electricity itself is not. So I just think it's harder for these various subtle forces to actually get our attention and to communicate with us because of the changes in our own internal energy system. Yeah, uh, I mean, that makes total sense to me, the way you just said it, because we could look at that as a quality of time is being made less accessible to us. It's not necessarily that the beams aren't there anymore, but there's a certain quality and engagement with time that becomes harder to see or access when everything is happening so quickly around us all the time and is constantly being agitated even when the lights are off or whatever the power and you know whatever is still coursing yeah. through the building constant there. stimulation right it's and constant. so you know one of the it, it's really interesting that you say that because right there's also that on off quality right that you uh, you have mentioned uh, yes, no quality to these beings where actually what needs to be created and given to them is a maybe, or is it, we're the ones that can give them the, the capacity for a maybe, we're the ones that can join in an alliance and give them the capacity for a, let me think about this. But those, that's a quality of time as well. And yes. so if I, I see more and more the need for a new kind of engagement with time, which is a re-engagement with the etheric body as well, and rhythms and memory. And a lot of those capacities have been opening up for people lately, I think, where people can remember the future, they can uh, experience rhythms differently. But that's going to be more and more required to be able to uh, access these other beings while the encroaching tech and electric electro elementals like grow more and more. It's actually a time capacity that we can bring to help contend with that and, and move past it. So one thing I find very useful, Connor, is because I, in the nature, in my work, uh, I'm tuning into something or other every day or almost every day. Um. But I start out at a very basic level with just things that are immediately around me. I don't try to extend into you know higher vibratory planes or contact subtle beings that that aren't close. But but like um, I touch into the the immediate life, the immediate subtle environment, which is 
the energy of my chair and the sofa and the living room and the table and and in in incarnational spirituality there's a very simple practice called touch of love which is just what it says i just reach out to touch something and and um, direct love to flow through my fingers into that into the life of that object whatever it is the chair that i'm sitting in but what i'm doing is attuning myself to that to that etheric life and to that subtle life and then that that has a way of you know revving up my <laughs> revving up my attunement on higher levels um so that being being in an electronic bubble ceases to be uh, an an issue um but i have to start with being grounded i have to start with which is what we really want to do with electricity anyway isn't it we want to ground it right <laughs> right so the more i can ground myself and anchor my energy both into my physical surroundings and into my the um etheric and subtle dimensions that are immediately around me and that provides a foundation i can use for for reaching out to contact you know nature spirits or whatever i might need to be in touch with it makes it sound like i'm like i like this is really easy but it's actually um it can be work to do you know it's like um <laughs> it's it's not always um it's not always right there in front of my face sometimes i have to work for it well it, but, yeah but you have to be grounded to start that work it's just that quality of like i mean there's a certain gesture which i've been practicing lately an inner gesture and i constantly forget it i constantly forget how to do it even though i've done it many times and i know it's working and doing things but when i do it it is difficult sometimes to generate sometimes it's very easy but sometimes it's very difficult mm -hmm. and it's kind of like if you're in a bad mood and someone's like just be happy it's like well okay i mean i know i can <laughs> i know i can be happy but there's a resistor inside of us. There's that resistant aspect and the forgetful aspect and all the other aspects that can kind of clutter the way to being able to enact the gesture of what you just said, the touch of love or the core calm connect, you know, uh, way of doing things, whatever it is. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of like that. I'd say it's the mood of soul most that you have to, get to first before you can even offer the gesture, you know? So I, I want to tell you a little story. Um, we have uh, two friends who would go out bicycling and the husband is a, is a, I guess you call him a marathon long distance bicycler. Okay. And his wife is kind of, uh, you know, go out on a weekend for short trips, <laughs> but he convinced her to go, with him on a, one of these long marathons of bicycling from Seattle to over to Spokane, which is a, or over to, uh, yeah, Spokane, which is across the state. I mean, basically they're bicycling across the whole state of Washington. And be between Seattle and Spokane, uh, most of Washington is actually desert and flatland, but between us, you know, we've got the Cascade Mountain Range. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we have to go up over the pass. So she's puffing along and not making much headway, and he would 
ride ahead and then he'd ride back to see what was holding her up. And she said, oh, these hills are really hard. And he said, well, don't think of them as hills. Think of them as areas of higher gravity. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that makes her laugh. So <laughs> I, I, I feel it's really important that we not get into conflict with ourselves, but we recognize that there are times when we're in a period of higher inertia. Yeah. And and sometimes, you know, we're we're in one of those hills where our inertia is higher than it was yesterday. And so trying to get things going, you know, get into a positive mood or to do this inner gesture, this spiritual work, whatever it is, <laughs> not so much that something in us was resisting it in the sense of, boy, there's part of me that really is against me and trying to make this not happen. It's more like, for whatever reason, it could be environmental, could be biological, could be something in the subtle environment. But for whatever reason, I'm in a, a time of high inertia. <laughs> mm. And and then I can just say, okay, okay, this is high inertia. And <laughs> I can either just relax and just be with it and let it pass, you know, wait till I get over the hill, or or I can pedal harder if I feel that. I really need to break through. It's up to me. But but I don't see myself in a context of resisting. I, that I do feel is important. I, uh, yeah. I want to be my own ally. No, that's really good. I mean, I think that that's just, first of all, it's, it's good to hear that you're still encountering that because I think especially people who are beginning spiritual journeys or just been on their way for a while, but not as long as you also like think that it's just a quality of not doing it long enough. But in fact, it's always, it's always there. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, I floss my teeth every night and every single night I think, Oh, I don't want to floss my teeth tonight. every night. It hasn't gone away. And I'm 45 and I've been flossing for years, you know, decades and I still have that feeling, and uh, it's just funny that it 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 can rise up that for for you and I mean not with lots of your teeth, sure. but yeah, that it can and rise up for you in that way. So I tell you what, I'll make a deal with you, Connor. The day that I become a genuine adept, I'll materialize in your apartment and say, "Hey, look, Connor, I made it." But up <laughs> until then, hey, I'm I'm down in the trenches with everyone else. All right, I'm going to remember that, just so you know, okay. so it's not as scary if you show up. <laughs> well, it depends on what form I take, wasn't it? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, listen, there's so many more things to talk with you about, but I think this is a great conversation to meet you with. It's really nice to meet you in this conversation, David. And Yeah, you too, Connor. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye now. Bye.